This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will be a question session reviewing multiple choice questions related to spinal cord injuries, which is one of the topics that we covered this past week on the podcast. So let's get right into it. The first question reads, A 67-year-old retired steelworker was involved in a motor vehicle accident and sustained a mid-cervical spinal cord injury. Radiographs and MRI scans reveal severe cervical stenosis and spondylosis without fractures or dislocations. Neurologic examination reveals an Asia C spinal cord impairment with greater motor involvement of the upper extremities than the lower extremities. What is the probability that the patient eventually will become ambulatory? And the choices are 1, 2 to 5%, 2, 15 to 20%, 3, 35 to 45%, 4, 60 to 70%, and five greater than 90%. So the patient sustained an incomplete spinal cord injury known as central cord syndrome. Central cord syndrome characteristically has disproportionate involvement of the upper extremities with the lower extremities being relatively spared. It is most commonly seen after cervical injuries in elderly patients with spondylosis and spinal stenosis, often without fracture. Penrod and Associates noted that 29 of 30 patients under 50 years old with central cord syndrome, that is Asia C and D, ultimately walked. The poorest prognosis, however, was in Asia C patients older than age 50, in which only 7 of 17 or 40% of the patients walked. So the correct answer to this question is 3, 35 to 45%. Moving on to the next question. A patient with a history of chronic low back pain for several years reports decreased pain visual analog scores with the home use of a transcutaneous electrical neuromuscular stimulation, or TENS, unit. This pain relief is most likely due to which of the following? And the choices are 1. Improved skeletal muscle strength and secondary spinal support. 2. Neuromodulation via presynaptic inhibition in the dorsal horn of the spinal cord. 3. Distraction sensory input. 4. Enhancement of muscle metabolic activity with improved lactic acid excretion. And 5. Placebo effect. So TENS units deliver superficial electrical stimulation. This electrical stimulation induces analgesia via inhibitory effects at the spinal cord level. The stimulation of small myelinated afferent fibers produces a presynaptic inhibition of the nociceptive transmission via unmyelinated C-fibers thus decreasing the transmission of painful stimuli. Additional benefit may come from the endogenous release of endorphins in the stimulated tissues. So the correct answer to this question is 2. Neuromodulation via presynaptic inhibition in the dorsal horn of the spinal cord. Moving on to the next question. An 82-year-old man is seen in consultation after being admitted for a fall from ground level. There was no loss of consciousness, and the patient recalls striking his head and sustaining a hyperextension-type injury to the cervical spine. Examination reveals an 8-centimeter head laceration with only mild axial neck tenderness. He has generalized weakness throughout the upper extremities and maintained motor function of the lower extremities. There are no obvious sensory deficits, and the bulbocavernosis reflex and deep tendon reflexes are maintained. What is the most appropriate diagnosis at this time? And the choices are 1, anterior cord syndrome, 2, central cord syndrome, 3, posterior cord syndrome, 4, brown saquard syndrome, and 5, spinal shock. So incomplete cord syndromes have variable neurologic findings with partial loss of sensory and or motor function below the level of the injury. Incomplete cord syndromes include the anterior cord syndrome, the brown saquard syndrome, central cord syndrome, and posterior cord syndrome. 
Central cord syndrome is characterized with greater motor weakness in the upper extremities than in the lower extremities. The pattern of motor weakness shows greater distal involvement in the affected extremity than proximal muscle weakness. Anterior cord syndrome involves a variable loss of motor function and pain and or temperature sensation with preservation of proprioception. The Bronsoquard syndrome involves a relatively greater ipsilateral loss of proprioception and motor function with contralateral loss of pain and temperature sensation. Posterior cord syndrome is a rare injury and is characterized by preservation of motor function, sense of pain, and light touch with loss of proprioception and temperature sensation below the level of the lesion. Spinal shock is the period of time, usually 24 hours, after a spinal injury that is characterized by absent reflexes, flaccidity, and loss of sensation below the level of the injury. So the correct answer to this question is 2, central cord syndrome. Moving on to the next question, a 22-year-old man sustained a cervical fracture dislocation of the C5-6 level in a motor vehicle accident along with an associated spinal cord injury. Six months after his injury, he has four out of five biceps on the left with five out of five biceps on the right. Deltoid is graded five out of five bilaterally. There is zero strength in the triceps, wrist flexors, wrist extensors, and digital extensors. He has neurogenic bowel and bladder with absent perianal sensation and no voluntary motor in the lower extremities. The patient's neurological deficit is best characterized as which of the following, and the choices are one, incomplete C5 spinal cord injury, two, complete C5 spinal cord injury, three, complete C6 spinal cord injury, four, central spinal cord injury, and five, Brown-Saquard syndrome. So the patient has a complete spinal cord injury. The level of a spinal cord injury is determined by the most distal intact that is five out of five function. The lowest motor intact level in this patient is C5 based on the described examination. Central spinal cord injury and Brown-Saquard injuries are both incomplete patterns of spinal cord injury. But the correct answer to this question is two, complete C5 spinal cord injury. Moving on to the next question, a 35-year-old man sustained a complete thoracic spinal cord injury at age 14. An MRI scan of his shoulder, when compared with studies from uninjured controls, is most likely to show which of the following. And the choices are 1. Hypertrophied subscapular muscle, 2. Rotator cuff tear, 3. Posterior glenohumeral subluxation, 4. Increased bone density, and 5. Supraspinatus nerve compression. So children that sustain a spinal cord injury or otherwise use a wheelchair for mobility and thus often have more pain and a higher incidence of structural and functional changes of the shoulder joint as an adult. MRI studies have shown a fourfold risk of rotator cuff tears in people with long-term paraplegia when compared with age match controls. An MRI scan would not show bone density changes. The other answer choices have not been demonstrated in higher numbers on MRI in paraplegics. So the correct answer to this question is two, rotator cuff tear. Moving on to the next question. A 23-year-old man is evaluated in the emergency department after a diving accident. Radiographs reveal bilateral jumped facets at C6, C7. Examination reveals no motor function below the C7 level. There is some maintained sensation in the lower extremities. What is the patient's current grade on the Asia impairment scale? And the choices are one, Asia A, two, Asia B, 3 Asia C, 4 Asia D, and 5 Asia E. So the American Spinal Injury Association, or ASIA, provides a standard method of measurement of spinal cord injury. The Asia Impairment Scale is based on a comprehensive motor and sensory examination. 
and Asia A grade is given to a patient with an injury with no motor or sensory preservation below the injury. An Asia B grade is defined as no motor preservation below the level of the injury, but some sensory preservation below the injury level. An Asia C grade is defined as a motor function grade of less than 3 below the injury level. An Asia D is defined as a motor function grade of greater than 3 below the injury level. And an Asia E grade is defined as a normal neurologic examination. So the correct answer to this question is 2, Asia B. Moving on to the next question. A 47-year-old man is seen in consultation in the ICU after being admitted and treated emergently for a dissecting aortic aneurysm. Current examination reveals generalized weakness of the lower extremities with a significant decrease in pain and temperature sensation from approximately the waist down. Proprioception is maintained. What is the most likely diagnosis at this time? And the choices are 1. Anterior cord syndrome, 2. Central cord syndrome, 3. brown saquard syndrome, 4. Posterior cord syndrome, and 5. Spinal shock. So incomplete cord syndromes include anterior cord syndrome, Bronsoquard syndrome, central cord syndrome, and posterior cord syndrome. The anterior cord syndrome involves a variable loss of motor function and pain and or temperature sensation with preservation of proprioception as seen in this patient. The bronsoquard syndrome involves an ipsilateral loss of proprioception and motor function with contralateral loss of pain and temperature sensation. The posterior cord syndrome is a rare injury and is characterized by preservation of motor function, sense of pain, and light touch with loss of proprioception and temperature sensation below the level of the lesion. The central cord syndrome is characterized with greater motor weakness in the upper extremities than in the lower extremities. The pattern of motor weakness shows greater distal involvement in the affected extremity than proximal muscle weakness. Spinal shock is the period of time, usually 24 hours, after a spinal injury characterized by absent reflexes, flaccidity, and loss of sensation below the level of the injury. So the correct answer to this question is 1, anterior cord syndrome. Moving on to the next question. A 22-year-old man has an acute spinal cord injury after a diving accident. Preliminary radiographs reveal bilateral jump facets at C6-C7. Neurologic examination shows an incomplete spinal cord injury consistent with an Asia-B impairment grade. This patient is otherwise hemodynamically stable with no other injuries. Attempts at closed high weight reduction with tong traction have so far been unsuccessful. What is the most appropriate management at this time? And the choices are 1. Continue a high weight close reduction of the fracture dislocation. 2. Urgent surgical intervention for reduction and decompression. 3. High dose steroids for 48 hours before surgical stabilization. 4. Halo fixation. And 5. Close reduction under general anesthesia. So, although there are no current standards for the timing of surgical intervention for acute spinal cord injuries, there is increasing data, including animal studies, suggesting that early decompression and stabilization for an acute spinal cord injury can be beneficial. Continuing attempts at close reduction is not advised given the failure of attempted high weight reduction. In light of the neurologic deficit, waiting 48 hours with or without steroid treatment is not recommended. Likewise, halo fixation without reduction of the dislocation should not be considered for definitive treatment. Closed reductions should not be performed under general anesthesia. So the correct answer to this question is 2, urgent surgical intervention for reduction and decompression. Moving on to the next question. The findings in Brown-Saquard syndrome include loss of which of the following? And the choices are 1, greater loss of upper extremity motor function than lower extremity function. 2. Ipsilateral motor function and ipsilateral pain and temperature sensation. 
3. Ipsilateral motor function and contralateral pain and temperature sensation. 4. Contralateral motor function and ipsilateral pain and temperature sensation. And 5. Loss of lower extremity proprioception and balance. So Brown-Saquard syndrome is most commonly seen after penetrating injuries to the spinal cord and results in ipsilateral loss of motor function and contralateral loss of pain and temperature sensation. Patients with central cord syndrome have greater weakness in the upper extremities than in the lower extremities. Loss of proprioception is typically seen in patients with posterior cord syndrome. So the correct answer to this question is 3, ipsilateral motor function and contralateral pain and temperature sensation. Moving on to the next question. A 17-year-old boy is shot in the left side of the neck at the C5-6 level and sustains an incomplete spinal cord injury that is called a Brown-Saquard syndrome. Which of the following best describes the expected deficits? And the choices are 1. Profound bilateral wrist extensor, finger flexor, and intrinsic weakness with good preservation of lower extremity motor function. 2. Severe bilateral upper and lower extremity weakness, pain and temperature sensory deficit, but preservation of deep pressure and proprioception. 3. Weakness of the right upper and lower extremity with diminished pain and temperature sensation on the left side of the body. 4. Left wrist extensor weakness and numbness along the radial border of the left forearm, extending into the thumb and index finger. And 5. Weakness of the left upper and lower extremity with diminished pain and temperature sensation on the right side of the body. So Brown-Saquard syndrome is an incomplete spinal cord injury that involves damage unilaterally to the cord, most commonly from penetrating trauma. The motor fibers of the cord decussate within the brainstem, so the motor deficit is ipsilateral to the injury, whereas the pain and temperature fibers cross the midline immediately on entering the cord, so that the sensory deficit is contralateral to the injury. This patient was shot in the left side, thus he would have weakness of the left upper and lower extremity with diminished pain and temperature sensation on the right side of the body. So the correct answer to this question is 5. Weakness of the left upper and lower extremity with diminished pain and temperature sensation on the right side of the body. Moving on to the next question. A 24-year-old man sustained a bilateral C5-6 facet dislocation in a car accident and was intubated at the scene. He remains sedated in the intensive care unit, so the clinical neurologic examination is limited. What MRI finding would most likely predict a complete spinal cord injury? And the choices are 1. 4mm rostral caudal cord edema, 2. Disruption of the anterior longitudinal ligament, 3. Edema in the soft tissue anterior to the spine, 4. Diffuse cord edema, and 5. 6mm cord hematoma. So the MRI finding that most consistently corresponds with a complete spinal cord injury is a hematoma within the cord. Cord edema can predict a poor prognosis if it is more extensive, but is not considered as consistent a finding. Ligamentous injury about the neck can indicate musculoskeletal instability, but it does not in and of itself indicate the presence or predict the severity of spinal cord injury. Likewise, soft tissue edema anterior to the spine may indicate musculoskeletal injury, but does not offer specific information regarding the presence or absence of cord injury. So the correct answer to this question is 5, 6 millimeter cord hematoma. Moving on to the next question. A patient has a C6 spinal cord injury. Following stabilization of the spine, the patient should be advised that their expected maximum level of function and ambulatory capacity will be achieved with use of which of the following devices. And the choices are 1. An electric wheelchair with puffer control, 2. An electric wheelchair with hand controls, 3. A manual wheelchair and sliding board transfers, 4. A manual wheelchair and independent transfers, 
and five crutches with long leg braces for short distance ambulation. So a patient with an injury at the level of C4 injury needs puffer control, C5 can use hand controls, C6 can use a manual wheelchair and sliding board transfers, C7 allows independent transfers, and no cervical injury routinely allows ambulation with crutches and leg braces. So the correct answer to this question involving a C6 spinal cord injury is three, a manual wheelchair and sliding board transfers. Moving on to the next question, a 22-year-old woman injures her neck in a motor vehicle accident. Examination reveals no sensory or motor function below T8. Radiographs and an MRI scan show a burst fracture at T7. 48 hours later, the bulbocavernosis reflex is present, but there is no evidence of motor or sensory recovery in the lower extremities. What is the most likely diagnosis? And the choices are 1. Spinal shock, 2. Anterior cord syndrome, 3. Caudoquina syndrome, 4. Complete cord syndrome, and 5. Brown-Saquard syndrome. So spinal shock typically ends after 48 hours with the return of reflexes, including the bulbocavernosis reflex. Lack of motor or sensory recovery in the lower extremities with the return of reflexes generally indicates a complete cord syndrome. So the correct answer to this question is 4, complete cord syndrome. And the final question for this review session, a 40-year-old man sustains a fracture dislocation of C4-5. Examination reveals no motor or sensory function below the C5 level. All extremities are areflexic. The bulbocavernosis reflex is absent. The prognosis for this patient's neurologic recovery can be best determined by, and the choices are 1, myelography with CT, 2, spinal cord evoked potentials, 3, repeat physical examinations, 4, MRI, and 5, electromyography and nerve conduction velocity studies. So the patient has spinal shock. Steroid administration and MRI are appropriate therapeutic and diagnostic procedures. Myelography with CT is of little value unless there is an unused skeletal variant. Spinal cord evoked potentials have no value. The best method to determine the patient's neurologic recovery is repeated physical examinations over the first 48 to 72 hours. So the correct answer to this question is three, repeat physical examinations. That's all for this question review session about spinal cord injuries. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on iTunes. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.